0: let me get this straight. You're telling me that if Adolf Hitler had just turned around and said sorry to God before he died, God would have just let him into heaven after all the awful things that he did. You start to feel hot under the collar. You muster your best response, which is something along the lines of, uh, yeah, I guess I am saying that. Well, where's the justice in that? I couldn't follow a God who would just sweep Hitler's crimes under the carpet. Can you? Now you're really red in the face. What do you say to something like that? Maybe you've had a conversation like that in your life. Maybe you've been on either side of that debate. God's grace and mercy towards bad people, really bad people, people like Hitler, that that can be a problem for us. But God's grace can cause us problems closer to home as well. Maybe we are not that concerned with hypothetical arguments about what God should or shouldn't have done with people like Hitler. Uh, Maybe when we pray things like, Father, uh, forgive us as we forgive those who sin against us, uh, we start to feel the implications of God's grace causing us trouble uh, closer to home. Uh, When someone close to us hurts us, and I mean really hurts us, it can be hard to accept that God wants us to forgive as he forgives. Even Jesus' closest, closest disciples once sidled up to him and asked Jesus, how far do you want us to go with this forgiveness stuff? How many times do we have to forgive someone who sins against us? Oh, really? That many times? Wow. You see, God's grace is amazing. It is amazing grace. But for human beings it's not without its problems. Jonah 4 is all about God's grace and mercy and the problems it gives people like us. We see two perspectives in this passage, the human perspective of Jonah and the divine perspective of the Lord himself. Let's start with that human perspective as we look at the problem of grace in verses 1 to 4. Chapter 4 Uh, Starts with some wordplay. We sort of miss it in our English translations, uh, but you may see it as a footnote in your Bible. You will if you have one of the the Red Church Bibles or an ESV. Uh, See, when it says in uh, verse 1, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, uh, you might see a little footnote that says uh, it could also be translated as it was exceedingly evil to Jonah. Or even it could be translated as this was a disaster in his eyes. So we've got Jonah getting things all upside down right from the start. The Ninevites turning from their evil is evil to Jonah. God forgiving them and not bringing disaster upon them, well that's a disaster in Jonah's eyes and it makes him angry. Now Jonah's anger is a it's a running theme through this passage. Uh, We're not to imagine him a little bit Put out by God. Jonah is seething with rage. Uh, To think of him like a a cartoon character. Bright red face, steam coming out of his ears. Clenched fist, stamped feet. Totally furious. Furious with God. Verse 2, he takes this up with God. He prayed to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. Now finally, after uh, three chapters, we're told why Jonah ran away, why he disobeyed God, why he didn't go to Nineveh as God told him, why he tried to go as far as he could in the opposite direction. It wasn't because he was afraid of the scary Ninevites. It wasn't because he thought God's word would have no effect on them. It's actually because he believed in God's power and God's mercy. Jonah points his finger at God in his anger, saying, I knew you would do something like this. This is so typical of you, God. You see, Jonah knew God. He knew God's character. And he was fully expecting his mission to Nineveh to result in Nineveh's salvation. Because he knows what God's like. Have you ever had to write a personal statement uh, most of us will have, if you've ever applied for a university or maybe applied for a job, you'll have written a personal statement. And if you're anything like me, uh, you'll have found the experience excruciating. Um, I find writing a personal statement really hard work because I'm not very impressive and there's not much interesting uh, things to say about me. But God is different. And Jonah here is quoting from God's personal statement, if you like, his own self-description which he proclaimed to Moses on Mount Sinai. Joseph, Joseph, Jonah asks uh, God, that's completely wrong, Moses asks God to reveal his glory. God passes in front of him, proclaiming who he is, and he tells Moses he is a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Jonah knows who God is. He believes what God has said about him, himself and this was a problem for him in fact jonah is so devastated by the way things that have the way things have turned out that he's lost the will to live look at verse three therefore now O lord please take my life from me for it is better for me to die than to live now this might seem very strange to us Jonah comes across as bitter and resentful, maybe uh, a bit overly dramatic here. Uh, But let's try and see this situation through Jonah's eyes for a moment. Uh, To us, the Ninevites are just a name on a page or an exhibit in a museum. They don't fill us with fear or anger. They're they're history. But for Jonah, things were very different. Nineveh was the capital of the, the brutal and sadistic empire of Assyria. If there was a a World Cup of cruel and vicious nations throughout history, uh, Assyria would at least make it through to the final. They might even lift the trophy themselves. Here's some uh, things that their kings boasted about. Uh, This is an inscription from King Asher II, uh, boasting about one of his conquests. He says, in strife and conflict, I besieged and conquered the city. I captured many troops alive. I cut off of some their arms and hands. I cut off of others their noses, ears, and extremities. I gouged out the eyes of many troops. I made one pile of the living and one of heads. I hung their heads on trees around the city. I burnt their adolescent boys and girls. Nasty stuff. Uh, A century or two later, probably closer to Jonah's time, uh, King S.R. Haddon boasts... I hung the heads of two kings on the shoulders of their nobles, and with singing and music I paraded through the public square of Nineveh. It's not for the faint-hearted. And this, this people, is who God has chosen to show his mercy to. Maybe we can sympathize a little more with Jonah's position here. Is it right that people like this should get off scot-free How does God showing mercy and forgiveness towards people who have committed such evil sit with you? Human beings have a a natural instinct, a desire to see justice done. When you read or hear about the latest atrocity, the murder of a helpless child, horrendous war crimes, oppression and corruption, it's just natural for us to want to see justice done, isn't it? We don't cry out for mercy for the perpetrators. I have the privilege of leading Christianity Explored courses here at Duke Street. Courses which um, aim to teach people the the basics of the Christian message and help them to uh, explore it for themselves. And I found it very interesting over the the four years that I've been here at Duke Street leading those courses that the the session that people find hardest to accept is not the, the session on sin, like I would expect, but the session on grace. I've not met a single person who has found it hard to accept that human evil exists, even that they're responsible for it, even that it deserves punishment. But the idea that that God will forgive you for free if you just trust in Jesus, that's crazy. Is God just totally naive? Is he just a big softy in the sky? Does he not care about right and wrong at all? perhaps, if we're honest, there are times when we might like to have this sort of conversation with God that Jonah is having here. And maybe this is a real problem for you here this morning. It's one of the things you struggle with most about the Christian message. If that's the case, if that's you, then know that God takes your objections seriously. His word doesn't dismiss your concerns, it addresses them. It addresses them in many places and Here is one of those places. From a human perspective, grace and mercy, they can be a problem. But mercifully, we don't just get a human perspective in Jonah chapter 4. I love verse 4 of this chapter. Jonah has the nerve to question God. He's downright rude. Uh, He's throwing uh, his words around. Maybe we'd expect a lightning bolt to come down from heaven and fry Jonah on the spot or for God to shout in a big, booming voice, how dare you talk to me like that? But once more, we're given the unexpected. Not a lightning bolt, not a roar of anger, but a quiet question. Do you do well to be angry? Jonah, I accept your your anger, but is it right? It's a kind response. A gentle response. It's exactly the sort of response you'd expect from someone who is gracious and merciful and slow to anger. In verses 1 to 3, we we see things through Jonah's eyes, from his perspective. In verse 4, God speaks and invites Jonah and invites us to see things his way. In verses 5 to 7, we see the perspective of the God of grace. Now, did you notice that Jonah doesn't even dignify God's question with an answer. Instead, now his job is done, he leaves Nineveh immediately uh, and then makes a shelter from the hot Middle Eastern sun and sits down to see what might happen next. Now, we've already seen in Jonah that God is so full of love and mercy he's so kind that he pursues even those who rebel against him. Now, I would have given up on Jonah a long time ago, thinking he's just beyond help. But God doesn't. And as Jonah sits under his makeshift shelter, desperate to see Nineveh pulverized and justice finally done, God gets to work. Just as he appointed a big fish to rescue Jonah from the sea, God appoints a big leafy plant to spring up and spread its big green leaves over Jonah to give him shade. And Jonah, well, he's delighted Uh, Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. You can see that at the end of verse 6. Imagine him there. He's gone from having steam coming out of his ears to a big beaming smile all over his face. Imagine him there taking shelter in the hot sun under these big green leaves. Ah, this is the life. But Jonah's delight, it doesn't last long. At dawn the next day, God appointed a a very hungry caterpillar to chew through one nice green leaf. Uh, Sorry, that's just muscle memory from having a two-year-old. God appointed a worm to attack the plant so that it withered. No more shade for Jonah. And it it gets even worse. Uh, Not only does God take away Jonah's shade, uh, he sends the wind to turn the heat from the rising sun into a sort of convection oven the sun beats down on Jonah's head until he was faint. And without his precious plant parasol, Jonah is back to square one, furious, ready to say goodbye to this cruel world. Look at the end of verse eight. He asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. Again, God speaks to him with that, Gentle but penetrating question. Do you do well to be angry for the plant? Is it right for you to feel like this about the plant? This time Jonah's had enough. Instead of, instead of freezing God out, he snaps back. Yes, I do well to be angry. Angry enough to die. We're supposed to find Jonah's emotional roller coaster quite funny here. God's prophet, emotionally up and down like a jack-in-the-box... Throwing a toddler tantrum, all because of a plant. But there's more to this than just the humor. See, God isn't toying with Jonah here. He's not punishing him for his insolence or teaching him not to ask questions. God is working on Jonah's heart. He's trying to save Jonah from himself. And you can see a clue to that again in verse 6. There's some wordplay in this passage that we might miss. Uh, But again, a footnote that might help us. Uh, Why did God send uh, the plant in the first place? Well, to provide Jonah shade, right? Well, there's uh, another answer to that question as well. Now, the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his evil. That word at the end of uh, verse 6 can also be translated evil. See, God is trying to save Jonah from himself. In one sense, he sent the plant to save Jonah from the the discomfort from sitting in the the hot midday sun. But on a deeper level, he's working to save Jonah from the evil attitudes that have captured his heart. His hatred for Nineveh, his desire to see them excluded from God's mercy, his fury at their salvation, It, it might all sound reasonable, when we look through human eyes. But the divine perspective we're given in verses 10 to 11 show just how unreasonable, how poisonous, how evil Jonah's attitude is. Verse 10, and the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, you did nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. Jonah, can you recognize how strongly You feel about this plant. I provided it for you. You weren't even its gardener. You didn't plant it or prune it. It was only with you for a day. But losing it has left you devastated. Jonah, think about how I feel about Nineveh. Verse 11. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. Now, all the way through Jonah, right from the start of the book, God has been presented to us as the God of the, the whole earth. And not just the God who's in charge of the whole earth, like a, a manager, but the one who created the whole earth and all its people. So isn't it right for him to care deeply, his creation God isn't just concerned for his his prophet or even just his people he's the God of the whole creation who cares for those who rebel against him no matter how how wicked they are he cares so much that even the cows matter to him you see that's God's perspective on our world the world and the people he made every single one of them matter deeply to him And so no matter how far their wickedness and their rebellion goes, his desire is never to smash them to smithereens, but to show them mercy. As we heard in 2 Peter earlier, he is patient towards us, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. It's not that God is soft on sin and wickedness, otherwise he would never have bothered sending Jonah to Nineveh in the first place. It's that his deep desire is that all people should turn away from their wickedness and sin and rebellion against him and turn to him. And for those who turn away from their sin and towards him, no matter how great their sin and wickedness and rebellion is, he will always show mercy. And he has the right to show mercy because he has bought it at the cost of of his own son. And the teaching of the Bible is clear. When God shows mercy to people, it isn't that their sin is swept under the carpet or he turns a blind eye. Sin is paid for by the blood of Jesus, God's own son. And as he died on the cross, he received the punishment for sin that God's justice demands, even though he was the only one who was truly sinless. Jesus' death on the cross shows us how seriously God takes wickedness and sin and the justice they demand. And it shows us how far his mercy and grace towards those who are guilty of such wickedness goes. Reading verse 11, I was reminded this week of Jesus' words on the cross in Luke chapter 24. This passage in particular, two other men, both criminals, were also led out with Jesus to be executed When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Even as nails were being driven through his wrists and feet into planks of timber, Jesus called on his Father to show mercy to the people holding the hammer. That's how far God's mercy goes. That is how far God is willing to go to show grace to the rebellious people that live in his world. And God's question for Jonah is, can you lift your eyes from your human perspective and see the world from my point of view? Well, how do you think Jonah responded? The book ends on a cliffhanger. This question is left hanging in the air. We're never told what Jonah's response was. Did he repent from his evil attitudes and ask for God's forgiveness for himself? Uh, Did he uh, trudge off to the closest port, desperate to finally finish his trip to Tarshish and get away from this infuriatingly gracious God forever? Uh, Who knows how Jonah responded. Uh, We can't know. But this question that's left hanging in the air is a question for us. And the question is, how will you respond to God's grace? Jonah shows us the risk that all who have received God's mercy and grace face. And see, he's happy for God to show mercy to him. Remember how he, he sang his heart out to celebrate God rescuing him from death in chapter two. But He's furious that God should treat other people that way, particularly those he disapproves of. Jonah is like a, a black hole of God's grace. He sucks up God, all of God's goodness and love and mercy towards him, always consuming, but never passing it on to anyone else. And so his heart is a cold, dead void. If you're a Christian, can you see any of Jonah in yourself? Are you happy to cling on to the Grace and mercy God has shown you in Jesus, but slow to pass it on to others. Now, that might look uh, like many different things. Perhaps, like Jonah, there might be people who you really don't want to see God's grace reach, whether it's because of their culture, or the color of their skin, or the level of their education, or their wealth, or lack of it, uh, their crimes, their lifestyle, their personality. If they were to turn up to church on a Sunday, your heart would sink. Now, if we ever find attitudes anywhere near that in our hearts as Christians, it's a, it's a really bad sign, a deadly sign, and we have to repent. If we're Christians, we have to do what Jonah didn't, turn to the Lord and ask for his forgiveness, ask for his spirit to change us and give us a heart of mercy like his heart. And Jonah is an intentionally extreme example. And maybe his problem isn't exactly your problem. But there are other ways in which we can fail to share in God's heart of mercy for this world. If we're black holes of grace, we will hold grudges tightly and refuse to forgive as we've been forgiven. Unfortunately, you don't need to be involved in any church for long to realize that it's, it's all too easy for our life together to be marked by resentment and bitterness. And that's before we think of those outside of church. Now, we might seek to do evangelism, but if we have a heart like Jonah, we'll we'll do it like Jonah, as a tick-box exercise, motivated by a a sense of duty, because we just have to, rather than out of love for the Lord and love for the people he's made. It might not be, be that we harbor bitterness or prejudice in our hearts, just that we've got our priorities all wrong, now, Jonah's experience with the plant, it seems very strange, but isn't it so, us, so easy for us to, to care more about our own comfort than a world full of people desperate to hear and receive God's mercy towards them? And perhaps this is the biggest risk for us at a church like Duke Street, in a city like London, even in a place like Richmond, it's so easy for us to be like Jonah, to be consumed by our consumerism so that the things we really care about are, well, just things. Things which bring us comfort rather than the people God has created. And those priorities will be reflected in our thought life, in our prayer life, in our diary, in our wallet. Those who are black holes of God's mercy wouldn't even think about doing something like giving up an evening of their week to to serve a meal and share the gospel with the needy at Manor House. And the idea of giving money to support missions on the other side of the world, that would be a crazy idea, completely off the table. Those of us who have received God's mercy, we're all in danger of being like Jonah, black holes of his mercy, cold consumers of God's goodness towards us, unwilling to ever pass it on. Of course, that's not the way we're meant to be. Rather than black holes of God's grace, those who have received God's mercy are to be more like chocolate fountains. Have you ever come across a chocolate fountain? Maybe at a wedding. Uh, Maybe you've got one at home. Uh, Invite me round, if so. (laughs) Imagine them there. All that chocolatey goodness being thrust up by the fountain, out the top, and oozing down, overflowing down and down, and what you need to do? Well, you get your your skewer with a bit of strawberry or marshmallow on, dip it in, put it in your mouth, and, delicious. We're to be more like chocolate fountains than black holes. Just like a chocolate fountain, God's mercy and grace towards us should fill us until we overflow, until we just can't help but pass it on to others. We don't cling on to it tightly, In fact, all those who come close to us will run the risk of getting a taste of God's goodness and mercy and love for themselves. We'll see every interaction we ever have as an opportunity to share God's heart for the people he has created. No matter who they are, how they live, what they've done. Friends, yes, but enemies as well. We'll remember that without God's mercy and grace in Christ we would be lost, deserving his judgment for all our rebellion against him. We'll allow God's priorities to become our priorities, letting our comfort shrink to the bottom of our list, and his vision for the world to grow, concerned to see the gospel of grace grow in our personal lives, in our life together as a church, even to the ends of the earth. That's what we should be like. That's how we should respond to God's grace. So the question is, what do you want to be? A black hole or a chocolate fountain? A cold consuming vortex or a delicious and delightful overflow of God's goodness and mercy and love? How will you respond to God's grace? Not just a theoretical question, but one we have the opportunity to uh, respond to right now. now. Let's take a moment. And in the quiet, talk to God. Think about how you'll respond to his grace. Ask him to help you be the person that you want to be and that he wants you to be.